Lifeway Leadership Podcast Network. You're listening to the Five Leadership Questions Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Atkins, and I'm here today with Daniel M. Hello, hello. And Iron Mike Harley. <laughs> Iron Mike. Iron Mike. I don't know. That's better than old Mike. It's Thank better you. than old Mike. Or um, Magic Mike. Iron oh, Mike. That's that, completely that, way, different. You know, we have one of those at Lifeway. It's Mike White. Mike oh, White with Magic Mike. Did you not know this? Yes. No, there's, I. Yeah. There's history there. Brother. Really? Okay. Yeah, there is. Yes. I saw a picture of him history. in tights. There you go. The there's the history. That explains the... a lot. There it is. Well, um, now our guest today, Mike Harlan, has been at Lifeway a while now. Mm-hmm. Um, and how long you, has it been? You, uh, little, almost fourteen, going on fourteen. Oh, wow. I, I was going to say seventeen. So uh, fourteen. I came to Lifeway um, about eight months before Dr. Rayner did. So it's quite a story. Dr. Draper was president of Lifeway mm-hmm. when I came. He. He's the president that hired me, uh, but I already knew he was retiring. Right. So I was very interested in who the next president would be. You know, I'd always told people I wouldn't, I would never go to a church as a worship pastor that didn't have a senior pastor. But I came to Lifeway that had a president that was retiring. So there was a little bit of hmm, trepidation about that. But, right, right. Um, but Dr. Rayner at that point, believe it or not, even though he will tell you, and I know accurately would tell you, it wasn't a done deal that he was going to be the president. It's quite a miracle how he became right. president of Lifeway. But I actually kind of thought that Tom Rainer was going to be the next president. I can't really explain how I knew that or mm-hmm. thought that, but I did. I came here with that assumption, and it turned out I was right. That's so good. That's very good. Maybe it was just the Lord being kind to a guy that moved well, under those circumstances. Uh, <laughs> Mike is the director of um, Lifeway Worship and has been uh, at various and sundry churches over the years. But one of the things I've thought that was really interesting is that, you know, Nashville is a city that's known for music. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at the music industry and how it's been completely turned upside down. You look at church practice and uh, society and how it's being completely turned upside down. I know that um, I, I have personally in the last seven years, so I've been here now, mm-hmm. uh, half of your tenure, wow. and watched you adjust and lead through tumultuous change, yeah. and um, come out, you know, looking pretty good, Mike. Well, so how did that? How did that happen? Yeah. First of all, and second of all, um, too, what I think people need to understand is in a very turbulent and difficult time, um, not just in Christian music, certainly in Christian music, but in music across the board. You've also, you know, become one of the leaders, not just in Christian music, but in, in the music industry as well. Well, um, th- that's interesting to and think of. Be a those this yeah, too. about, well, one's here and I've got a baby being born right now <laughs> while we're talking. But, Dedication, uh, folks. Dedication. Some of it is just survive, you know, just staying in the game. You know, if you live long enough, it's going to change. Mm. Years ago, I realized that music was not the point, that it was only a language. Hmm. And that uh, that the dialect of music was going to change context to context, and that I didn't need to marry uh, an approach to music because it will change, and it has changed. I mean, if you zoom way out to the beginning of church music, uh, the you think the the 
changes of the modern era tumultuous. You ought to go back to the Renaissance period when they would literally throw things at the person leading the music if if it had a harmony in it that was considered to be secular. Wow. I mean, it, it, there, this is not a new problem. <laughs> it's been going. I mean, a lot of people don't realize when Handel first performed Messiah, it was completely controversial because he had engaged and and used secular music form and harmonization with the holy writ of scripture. Right. And he had tomatoes thrown at him for for Messiah when he mm. first performed it. Wow. So this whole idea that music and music's never been unifying. The idea that you can unify a church around a music style is insanity. Mm. There's nothing about music that's unifying. You better unify it around Jesus. And the music styles will come and go and there'll be nuances and changes and uh, should we have choir or not? Should we have organ or not? Should we I mean all those questions have They've been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. Good yep. Man. I haven't been around that long, but I've, <laughs> the, the last 14, I've seen, uh, you're right, uh, not just the changes of music, the the technological changes that have, the impact on that, that that's had on church music, the impact that the health of the music industry has had on worship leadership. Because uh, 20 years ago, a guy writing songs and performing with his guitar and being an artist, could make a living selling CDs, but yeah. a guy today can't do that. And they all can't do 300 concerts a year. So where did the artists go? Well, they went on the stages of our churches. And that had um, a very profound impact on congregational singing. Talk Not about a, that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. It's fascinating. It is fascinating. Well, uh, I'm going to throw the five questions. Well, the artists, <laughs> you know, when an artist is leading congregational singing, it can be problematic because an, um, a shepherd leads people to sing. An artist will sing for the people. Oh. Um, it's two different things. And so what typically can happen is the artistry can overpower the congregation's voice. Mm. And it will act, it can actually shut a congregation down. Mm. Now, that's not to say the leader— watching and not participating. Exactly, yeah. and and rightfully so. I mean, if you—you know, there's, there are people that if they came to my church and started leading worship, I'd want to hear them. I wouldn't want to hear me. And, and there's some positives there. I, I don't want to suggest that artists on the stages of our churches are negative, all negative. But there needs to be a really healthy awareness of the shepherding role that a worship leader has to have. Um, that a, a worship leader that's thinking rightly um, does not allow the artistry to overpower the voice of the congregation, but shepherds people to be engaged. Hmm. You know, that's, that's real key. So, so when did that switch happen? Hmm. And when did people start realizing and, and how are you helping in, in, in that way? Then? Well, another factor in all of that was the technology technology okay. that stepped into it because until about 1978 or 9, uh, the only thing a church would sing, really regardless of where you were, or what denomination or urban or rural, a uh, church would sing what was in the book. Uh, that's that was it was a defined repertoire that everybody knew and everybody had sung most of their life with very few new songs. Mm-hmm. But when we began to print lyrics and project lyrics, suddenly the hymnal wasn't the source book anymore. Yeah, and so I, I've got two or three the, the book uh, Worship Essentials that I, that I just released actually talks about this. Okay. Um, I think there are two or three movements that happened. The Promise Keepers movement had a profound impact on the Baptist church. Okay. In the, in my opinion, because these deacons were going by the bus load to a outdoor event with 70,000 men. 
I went to two or three of those myself, and they heard songs they'd never heard before, mm. sung in a way they'd never heard songs sung before with 70,000 men. And those deacons on the bus ride back home has got their worship leader pinned up in the back of the bus. Yeah. And the reason I know that is because I was in the back of the bus pinned up with my deacons, <laughs> and they're saying, why don't we sing that? Yeah. Why don't we sing those songs? Why don't we do a band? Why don't we do... They yeah. began to say, why isn't our church doing what we're, really? we just saw at Promise Keepers? And, um, and, and when the men and the deacons and the leaders of the church began to ask that question, it started changing in Baptist churches. That was, that was a profound moment in the evolution of song for Baptists. Wow. It would be super interesting to have a conversation around, you know, between promise keepers and passion. Yeah. There's some similarities what, there. Like, yeah. what happened, you That's know. That's fascinating. Yeah, yes. and generationally, too. Because yes. for me, so I grew up in a Korean Presbyterian church in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. So hymns... I, our, our church sung hymns, but only in the main Korean service. Mm-hmm. So there was a hymn book, and I mean, it was always, I equated hymns with, I don't understand it because yeah. it's all in Korean. Yeah. I mean, it's the same hymns that yeah. you all would sing. I just don't know them in English. Yeah. I know them in Korean. Yeah. So when I started, when I went to student retreats and youth retreats, we were singing like, uh, you are my all in all, mm-hmm. or as the deer pants mm-hmm. for the wall, you know, Maranatha and all, yeah. that was kind of, and and I had a, a lot of, I mean, close encounters with the Lord. Really, is that was kind of the music, the era of the music where I gave my life to yeah, the Lord. Yeah. But then when Passion came around, and they were singing, you know, Chris Tomlin was singing, no en- question, yeah, enough, and you know, all of those songs. Yeah. I mean, that was just how great is our God? How great is our God? Yeah, I mean, that's just exactly. and Hillsong as well. Sure. Oh, I mean, totally. that just totally. Transformed. So I remember leading worship, and we would carry around a box of Ida guitar in one hand <laughs> and a box of transparencies in yes, the other hand. Yes, because we always had to. So we never really sang out of the hymnals. Yeah, uh, for me, because of that unique background. It's fascinating. Uh, well, that and that's what happened. You so you have the rise of the of the church artist. Yeah, the rise of a technology that now makes lyric projection not just the technology, but the the licensing thing that yes. CCLI figured out. And there's a whole week I could talk about that the rest of the day. But churches began to find a whole new body of work. And then you mentioned the passion movement, and Todd. That's very interesting to think about what Promise Keepers was. Uh, the impact it had in the late 80s, early 90s, I think you could say passion had a similar impact yeah. on the worship of churches because mm-hmm. these 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 millennials are in these large experiences and they're hearing songs like, I mean, Chris Tomlin walked out in Memphis, Tennessee and sang How Great Is Our God. And six months later, every church in the world that, you know, was singing <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so it, it just shows you, of course, the power of media, um, you know, so everything got faster and faster and faster and changing faster and faster and faster. And uh, it's been it's been interesting to watch the church try to try to keep up with that. And and what's really interesting now we sit here is now we see emerging generations now reverting back to some of the practices hmm. before before promise keepers. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, yeah, and so in, in the sense cyclical. of yeah. Hymnal, more like more hymnal oriented, more more liturgical. Okay, I was yeah. going to say liturgy. Uh, no question. There, mm-hmm. there's, there's so no question. fascinating, but um, one of our good friends who's over in Australia, he's actually one of the um, co-hosts of the One Thing podcast. Scott Saunders was here. Is it Saunders or Sanders? <laughs> Sanders. I always use totally, Saunders because yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. I'm just like I'm going to make it Australian or something. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> So he came to uh, to my church and he was like, 
this is like going back to my childhood. He's mm. like, I haven't been at a, you know, an, a, an Anglican service that was this liturgical in over 20 years. And it's a Baptist so he church. he was calling yeah. your church li- yes. liturgical. Now, he yeah. happened to be there when we were having communion. We had uh, responsive reading. We had reading of scripture. Mm. Um, yeah. But but those things happen. Everything but communion happens every Sunday. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so he... He was like blown away, and he was yep. blown away that it was a, a full, you know, a full service and and all that. And uh, we spent, you know, a while talking about that. The Hillsong effect, um, too, is part of that story. Um, every every weekend, fifty million people sing a Hillsong song. <laughs> fifty million. Um, and and the interesting thing about them that's is crazy. Million? Fifty million every Sunday. I think it yep. no it knows no theological slash genre slash whatever bounds either because you'll have churches of all shapes sizes no denominations yeah. walks yeah. of life that'll be like oh it's okay <laughs> like yeah uh, yes we're super you know far right reformed mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. but oh but this song's song. okay yeah. so okay what's That's interesting true. is the last two years Todd and I've gone to Australia and we have a partnership with the guys out there, Geneva Push and Reach Australia and, right. and, and the work that they're doing there. So the fascinating thing for us in North America is that I think most of us knew about Hillsong worship before Hillsong Church. For sure. Right? No doubt. So shout no doubt. to the Lord, sure. you know, all these songs. So I don't think in, in North America, at least, I don't think many of us associate Hillsong songs with the charismatic movement no that they question. are. With the church versus when we were in Australia, churches in Australia, a lot of the churches there that we were working with, they maybe sang one or two Hillsong songs, but it wasn't an open book. It yeah. was very carefully selected. And because, they qualified it to us. Yes, they did. Which was really weird. They yes, were like, it's oh, more of a Western you, I'm thing. I'm sure you noticed that this was a, but this is why we, this song, this particular yeah. song is okay. And I'm like, yeah. I really didn't. No I like, question. I listen to all the, I mean, my preaching <laughs> sure. message, my preaching music. So Sunday morning when I'm praying through the message, it's always this one album from Hillsong. Yeah. Because yeah. I just, it just gets me, you know, I'm, I'm just worshiping and it's just fun. <laughs> no question. And I would say this is happening uh, multiple ways with other churches. Like you could say the same thing about Bethel's music. Yeah, you could say true. the same thing about Gateway's music. You could say the same thing about Elevation Worship. I mean, um, even even Harvest uh, Vertical Church. Yeah, um, all of those churches have a worship identity that may or may not be related to the pulpit. Yeah. Uh, That's uh, really interesting. Lakewood in Houston. Yeah, their, their worship ministry operates fairly independently from really? the pulpit. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so Mike, your book, Worship Essentials, yep. Growing a Healthy Worship Ministry Without Starting a War. Yeah. And those are some fighting words there. Yeah, it really are. <laughs> well, and, yeah. I, I'm grateful to say that um, today as we sit here in this podcast, the the idea of worship wars is a waning idea, and yeah. I praise God. Mm. Uh, but I've been on the front lines of this battle for, for 30 years watching these seismic changes in worship approach and strategy and songs in the church and the division that that's called and uh, are caused. And what, I, what I've seen is the church believing there was a time when the church began to believe that a worship approach could be a growth strategy for their church. And mm. I just can't see that in the, in the scripture. I just, yeah, okay. I, 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 like better music. Sure. 
is going to be a church growth. Exactly. Yeah, okay, our our okay. church is not growing. Yeah. Uh, if we yeah. just did our music the way they're doing yeah, it, our so church would grow again. Met, right. You know, yeah. And and I, I and it 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 is what that did. It created, uh, and I think unintentionally. I, I but I think in many settings it created this this conflict that became a stylistic thing. Okay. And and of course the music of a church is such an identifying marker of the church. Mm. I mean, talk to almost anybody. Describe your church for me. Well, in the first three sentences, it's going to be something about how the pastor preaches, what his style is. It's going to be something about how they worship and what their music is like. And it's going to be something about what their discipleship strategy is, yeah. you know, or hopefully. Or kids ministry. Or kids ministry. Those are the big three, man. Yeah, you're going, they're going to be talking about our programs. You could just say that in a general sense. So worship, the way a church approaches worship becomes such an identifiable, identifiable mark of their ministry approach. And in the name of unity, we began to create this smorgasbord buffet worship approach in single ministry settings. And what it typically now we look back on some of those choices uh, 10 and 15, 20 years later, and it really kind of inbred conflict unintentionally. Nobody said, hey, let's blow the church up. Uh, you know, nobody intended that, but mm. we start the contemporary service at eight and the eight thirty, and the traditional service at ten thirty or whatever. And ten years later, we go, "Wow, what what did we really accomplish here?" And uh, and now, what I've tried to do in this book is call out some values that transcend all of those kind of choices. Yeah, there okay. really are some markers of a healthy worship culture that really aren't stylistically oriented or even musically related as much as they are spiritual objectives that can be pursued by any size church, no matter what their music approach might be. Okay. So before, I'd love to hear what those are, uh, but before we get to that, I just wanted to share that this episode is brought to you in partnership with the Christian Standard Bible. This is a Bible translation created to be accurate, readable, and shareable. You can learn more at csbible.com. They recently, with Christianity Today, have released a new podcast called Living and Effective. So let's listen in. I thought a podcast about how the Bible changed the world would be easy and encouraging. I was wrong. Join me as I explore the overlooked, complicated, and surprising ways God's Word is living and effective. Subscribe on iTunes and learn more at livingandeffective.com. All right, Mike. So, what are those? What are those values that you were referencing? So, I call uh, I call out four values, and I try to talk of it, talk it uh, about them in terms that are easily understood. and And I'll tell you, Daniel, the way the way this whole book came about was, Doctor Rayner had asked me to be on his podcast, Rayner on Leadership, and and he asked me to Jonathan asked me to come and talk about worship. So. About two days after that first podcast aired, Jonathan called me and said, this is the most downloaded podcast we've ever had, and wow. we want you to come in and do another one. So I went in and did a second one. They released it. He, a couple of days after that, this one surpassed the other one. <laughs> so it w- didn't take Dr. Rayner long to realize that pastors— <laughs> He's sharp. Well, he is. He's sharp. Uh, it's probably Jonathan, but anyway. I, I don't know. <laughs> I was talking about worship in a way that pastors— wanted to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't talking about 
uh, band versus choir or, you know, I wasn't talking about those musical kind of things. I was talking about it in terms of what would be some discipleship goals, some spiritual markers of a healthy worship culture. And I began to talk about those things. And so Dr. Rayner wound up making me a regular guest on his podcast, which opened up a whole world for me. His audience, as you know, is all these pastors out there. And I began to be invited to speak at pastors' conferences mm-hmm. and 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 going into to an audience that I really had never talked directly to on that scale. Um, and that's when Dr. Rayner really encouraged me to go ahead and let's get this in a book yeah. because— we're 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 ha- we're giving pastors what the book's intended to do is give pastors a way to talk about this, yeah. that that give them a, a language to use and some things to look for in their ministry that might be helpful. So, so there are four values I call out. The first one I call is tell the story, and what I mean by that, there in a healthy worship culture, there is a singular focus on the person of Jesus Christ, who He is and what He has done. Uh, the story of the gospel. And I talk about uh, all the ways that that can be expressed in a worship culture. But in the modern worship movement, it's easy sometimes to spend more energy expressing how we feel about God than singing about the attributes of God himself. Mm. But when I look in the writing of Paul and I look in the New Testament, Paul was a songwriter at least five or six times in his letters and epistles. He would write in song form. He was a singer. He, he sang one night and split yeah. a jail open. That's right. I don't know if his singing was that bad or if got, what happened on that, but I've known some pastors I work with that if they oh, sang, the yeah. jail would split open. But Or former bosses. Or former bosses. But, but Paul, I mean, when he wanted to write something, like I think about the first chapter of Colossians 1, 15 through 20, is probably the most concise and thorough Christology in all the Bible. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn mm. for over all creation, for by him all, <clears throat> excuse me. It's that powerful it, of a yes, passage. Yes, it is. It's choking me up. Um, and that's written in song form. Yeah. Um, healthy worship cultures have a singular focus on the person of Jesus. It's Christocentric, uh, who he is, and they tell his story, but and they tell the gospel story in, in song. I mean, the songs themselves say it. It's not just preached, but it is expressed by a congregation. So telling the story is the telling of his story, but it's also the telling of our story. Um, Healthy worship cultures have a sense of testimony about them where the body actually sings over each other. We sing truth back and forth Mm. to each other. We look each other in the eyes and sing, great is thy faithfulness, and we sing it from a place of brokenness, but but testimony of God's faithfulness— usually point to Psalm 107 as an example of this. Mm. There are four great stories of how God intercepts and interrupts the the predicament of, of people and rescues them. And the result of that is their song of worship that responds to what God has done. So a healthy worship culture has a story about it, a, a, a singular focus on Jesus, and then the telling of his faithfulness in the culture. And then the second point I uh, point two is making disciples. A healthy worship culture ministry in a church is a disciple-making ministry. Yeah. This is where church musicians, um, many times we're busted on this. Um, a lot of times we're at the coffee pot, you know, during the small group time at mm-hmm. the church. We're 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 in rehearsal. We're doing the art thing, the music thing, and and I want to. I tell church musicians everywhere I go, the calling and responsibility we have is the very same mission that the church has, and that's the mission of making disciples. And I talk about a, in a healthy worship culture, that happens in concentric circles. Um, 
where uh, the leader of that ministry, as a matter of fact, I tell any pastor out there, if your worship leader is a just a musician, a hired gun musician, then you're going to get what that brings. And well, that's not absolutely. always a great thing. But if, you're, if your chief musician is a disciple maker, hmm. the ministry he leads will be a disciple making ministry that will be part of the overall strategy, not something that competes for budget and calendar and people resources, but something that actually complements the whole mission of the church. Yeah. And I tell music guys, you know, these guys call, my pastor wants to do away with the choir or whatever. And I'm telling you, I don't. I haven't met a pastor yet that if you are leading something that's making disciples that he's not going to support. Mm. Uh, if your choir is a disciple-making organization, you won't have to defend it at budget time. Uh, you know, so you won't. Good. You won't. And so that's the second mark. Are you making disciples? Well, you know, and it's interesting— um, people that listen to the podcast know that we're quite obsessed with leadership development, leadership pipeline. And a big part of that is helping everybody understand that, you know, we need to move into multiplication and that happens sure. at every level. So the, the choir member or the volunteer, no matter Absolutely. what ministry they're in, um, we also are privileged to get to go into churches and spend longer periods of time with individual churches. And I'm shocked but not shocked um, because about half the time you have um, the creative arts. We'll just throw all that mm -hmm. together. So production and worship and, mm -hmm. you know, all these things. And, and a lot of the churches that we're spending that much time with are larger churches. So they have, you know, multiple people in these areas. Sure. They think they get a pass yeah. for developing other people because they, from their perspective, you're, you know, I'm, I'm hired because of my skill level. Sure. Um, I, you know, you don't understand, Todd, the, the whole reproducing yourself is for other people. I can't do that. Like, mm, yeah. you know, we'd have no place. You don't understand the excellence factor that's demanded of a church this size. Um, you know, you hear all those things. You're saying you're, these guys are kind of whiny. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> kind of like that? Well, do you remember, um, the first time we went to lunch? I don't know. I okay. Don't. So we went to lunch and you asked me, and I can't believe I said this, but I mean, we had just sat down. I think we may have ordered. You said, very serious, because um, you're a godly and holy person. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> you said, um, Todd, what do you think worship leaders are passionate about today? Do you huh. remember? No, I don't remember. I, what, said, I don't remember what you said either. I said golf. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's a fair answer. Some of my worked with. That's a fair golf. answer. That's fair answer. Um, <laughs> and you handled it quite well, <laughs> but um, you thought it was funny, apparently, or yeah, at least I pretended I, I, I to. Yeah, I do think it's funny. Um, That's right. But it was, uh, and, you know, as a um, former executive pastor, that was, it was, it's been interesting to me to look back. And if you look at, um, if I look at one of those people um, we'll call him Will because that's his name, <laughs> um, is now pastor, is, yeah. is a, a really great pastor um, in Illinois. And, um, you know, at the time, I can remember him spending a lot of time, you know, with people and developing people. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that's ultimately what I wanted, but it was different than some of our other guys yeah. and, and girls. Um and so, you know, looking back on that now, I'm like, wow, I could totally see that. And I can remember having yeah. conversations with him where I'd be like, hey, man, you, like, I know you want to be a pastor, but you are 
an absolutely incredible worship leader, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I can just remember conversations now where I'm like, I, that was not helpful at all. <laughs> that was not helpful. Well, he was a shepherd. And, he was, and the book, is. one of the chapters in the book I talk about is artists and shepherds. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have an artist leading this ministry or a shepherd leading this ministry? And what we really need is we need artistic shepherds. Oh, but you better be good. sure you have a shepherd in this role, especially if you are in a change environment. Mm. If you're in a church situation where you're going, our music needs to change or the way we do worship and music needs to change, you better be sure you have a shepherd leading change. If you have an artist leading change, you're going to have World War III on your hands before yeah. you know it. And the artists will leave and go to another place, another stage they can sing on. Well, yeah. I mean, I yeah. know I know this one church who lost probably, they went from 1,300 to 300 because yeah. they decided to wholesale, just change their music. Yeah. And everyone just went to another church that had more traditional music. Yeah. And that, that's amazing. <laughs> uh, I mean, that, that may, that's a huge, di- I mean, that's a huge impact on your church. So Make Disciples was the second one. The third one, uh, I, I, I say about this, engage the body. And I would tell, I'll just real succinctly say um, that that healthy worship cultures measure their impact not on how well the set was executed, but how engaged the congregation was. Mm. Um, they, they are literally watching the sheep and going, are they engaged? And I, I hear people say sometimes, well, do they have to be engaged? Can't they just enjoy the worship? Do they have to participate in it? And I want to tell you, I could talk the rest of the day on that subject, but the 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 singing event does something in the heart and the psyche and the conscience and the soul of the singer that uh, listening to music doesn't do. And there are medical studies around this fact. There are spiritual implications of this. I think about Psalm 40, verse 3. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see it. Mm-hmm. So this song is done in the assembly, and it, the visible aspects of this song are equally important to the audible ones. And that, that's we don't think of that. We think yeah. more like American Idol. We, we, it's a contest. <laughs> Who can, right. The great singers should be on stage. Um, and that is just not the biblical model. It's uh, Worship is something we come. As a matter of fact, I would tell pastors, this is how much this matters, pastors. Your people's prayer vocabulary will be built on what they're singing. They will learn how to pray yeah, by, what, so true. by the songs we put in their mouths. So, right. the, uh, so how important is that? And then number two, they will listen to your sermon with as much energy and activity as they participate in the singing with. So if, they, if their arms are folded, folded and they're staring at their phone all the way through the congregational response times, whether it's singing or, or, or testifying or, or speaking or whatever, giving. If they're passive then, they'll be passive when you preach. And they'll respond passively to whatever response you call for. Yeah, uh, It's that important. So engaging the congregation, are they engaged? And if the answer to that's no, then those leaders need to really find some reasons what is keeping our, our congregation from engaging. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons or one of the ways to find that out is to, you know, pastor, you got to look at yourself in the mirror. Yeah, no right? doubt. I mean, I know no a doubt. lot that just they're on their phones. Yeah. And yeah, yeah maybe they're texting the sound guy or they're, yeah. no one else knows that. Yeah, yeah. Right. And if the pastor isn't worshiping himself, yeah, I mean, how does he expect... The, no the doubt, church. the the church will reflect uh, the pastor's engagement in worship. There's no there's no way around that. They will. He almost gives them permission and kind of sets yeah. the bar of what's what's attainable. Yeah, for I heard them. I heard Keith Getty. We interviewed him on on the new churches yeah. uh, a webinar that we did, and and he called the pastor 
like the daddy of the church. No question. And he was like, if the daddy isn't worshiping, yep. how do you expect the kids to worship? No question. Mm-hmm. And I, and you mentioned daddy of the church. I, in families, I see this. I'll call out the dads that are listening to this. If dad doesn't sing, nobody in the family sings. Mm-hmm. I've seen that for 35 years standing on platforms. If dad sings, everybody in the family will engage. If he yeah. doesn't, nobody else will. So dad, if you don't like the sound that comes out of your mouth, move your lips, <laughs> do something, <laughs> find some way to participate. And then the fourth value, uh, I call this one aspiring with purpose. Yeah. And uh, what I mean by that is, uh, and this goes back to that excellence thing, Todd, mm-hmm. I am aspiring for artistic excellence as a church musician, but not for the reasons an artist would. My reason to aspire for excellence, and, and there is no set arbitrary standard, you've got to be this good or you ought to sit down. It's not that at all. But I'm aspiring to do this the very best way I can do it for two purposes. Number one, to worship a God who's worthy of my very best. And that's the argument church musicians make all the time. But here's number two, and I think even equal or maybe more important, so that the gospel goes unhindered. Hmm. So that the the misspelled word, word on the PowerPoint slide is funny, but it hinders, it hinders, it, it's a distraction. Mm. The microphone that doesn't come on, the song the band didn't know how to play, the, I mean, on and on and on, yeah. the character of the singer whose social media post on Saturday night compromise the integrity of what she's saying on Sunday morning. Yeah. All of those factors, the healthy worship culture makes those things like we put them in the crosshairs. Uh, and I, I, I tell people a lot, the, the job could actually be called the enemy of distraction. Wow. My job is to be diametrically opposed to anything that's going to hinder the, the word of God going forth and the response of God in worship. So that. aspire with purpose. Those are the four values. And so, so Mike, as you're talking about different music styles, mm-hmm. right, and we were kind of going back and forth, I recently heard someone say this, and, and I just wanted to hear your thoughts because there are a lot of churches who, I know you said worship wars are kind of going away or people mm-hmm. aren't really talking about it as yeah. much, but there are a lot of churches who sure. have two different services. Sure. Or they, I mean, it's, it still happens. Right. And, and one of the comments I recently heard from a pastor was uh, the, the music you worshiped and listened to when you came to know Christ. I mean, that is incredibly personal and sure. usually that music that you want to stick to. So if that's the case, right, if that's the case, how and, and maybe it's not. I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And if that music is so personal to them because they have that spiritual experience uh, with that, how does a church then lead with new music continuing to come <laughs> yeah, out? People coming to Christ at different generations. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's a great question. I, I think here's the thing I would call out in a church. I, w- I always go back to Romans 14. I think my Bible would just open to Romans 14. There are two worship questions on the table in Romans 14. They are whether or not you should eat meat. Mm. And, and the second one was uh, which day of the week is more significant or the special day of the week. And Paul addresses the church at Rome and and puts this principle out there that I think has great application in the worship context. And that is that the mature uh, are patient mm. with those that are developing their faith. And he even says, he opens the chapter, well, it wasn't a chapter when he said it, but chapter 14 opens with this statement, don't argue about doubtful issues, but instead understand that each one will give a personal account each one should be do what should do what they're fully convinced of i think the principle that he lays out there and also in 1 corinthians 11 and other places um, is that the body of christ has a deferential 
posture toward each other mm. in worship. Mm. So that generation that decides the way they did it is the way everybody ought to do it yeah. is not thinking maturely as oh, spiritually. Okay. Yeah, yeah, they aren't. Good. They aren't. And, uh, you know, that, that generation should celebrate emerging generations that are finding their own voice yeah. and finding their own music and finding their own experience in their worship. And I would think the more mature among us chronologically, hopefully would also be more mature spiritually. And we would have a lot of patience and a lot of deference and a lot of willingness and think if we modeled that for younger generations, they could learn the same posture back toward other generations. Oh. They could learn to celebrate the music of our youth, of you know, and the body that the 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 healthy congregation that understands that principle, that they would rather have each other than win a debate on music style. Mm. I mean, think about what we're choosing to prefer. We we're actually saying, I prefer this music style over you. How ridiculous! Over your presence here. Uh, yeah, over your presence wow. with and how and how, and that's just immaturity yeah. on all of our parts yeah. that we've taken that posture. So, so um, I think my personal taste musically, I'm probably not typical because I love music of all styles. I I love the traditional, even sacred oratorios. I love them. Mm -hmm. Want to sing them. Want to conduct them. Did, uh, but I love the new, the the great music of Corey Asbury and and um, and and Matt Redman and and of course all the. I mean, I, the, you'd be hard pressed to find a genre of music that I don't have some appreciation for. Uh, I'm not saying I'm the example. I'm just saying that you you can. You don't have to be stuck anywhere, and uh, and the body should prefer each other to any to any music style. So good. Yeah, so, that so. is. <laughs> Mike, thank you for being on the podcast. Oh, man, I'm sorry. Us. I'm going to. No, no, this is great. This has been yeah, great. This is great. I, I think a lot of pastors are going to listen to this, and not only pastors, but, you know, there's probably more people that listen that aren't pastors than are pastors and um, are certainly leaders in their church, and you just, like, gave yeah, us all All right, so let me give you a, let me give you a biblical on. observation that's okay. fascinating. Thing. All right. So, we'll allow that. So the— the Psalms, there's a number of them, about a half dozen or so, that have superscriptions of them in the original manuscripts that are associated with tune names. So I think Psalm 68, 9 in there, uh, according to the tune, the lilies is one of them. So if God preserved the text, and we certainly believe he did, why didn't he preserve the tune? He could have. Could God have preserved the tunes? Absolutely he could have. Why didn't he? And I've always pontificated on that subject and have come to this conclusion that every generation has the unique opportunity to collaborate with God in worship expression, mm. that every generation finds their own way to say it, their only own way to do it, their own instrumentation, their own, that he was not prescriptive on the artistic side, the musical side of it. Yeah. And, and That's he invites good. us to collaborate with him in worship. And go. what generation should be so, so, emboldened to think that the way they did it is the way everybody else should. Wow. What a shame. Hey, that'll yeah. preach. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. There's so several. Yeah. That will. Preach that. Yeah. That'll, that'll, that'll be I really mean, good. I mean, certainly the Old Testament, uh, David could have been that presumptuous. I don't think any of the rest of us could have, could be. But he even even his tunes weren't preserved. Yeah. Okay. Man, that's I'm good, Mike. Now. That's Mike. Hey, so right. thanks again for Thank listening into the podcast. If you haven't yet texted the word leadership to the number triple eight triple one eight 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 one one one, be sure to do that because you'll be entered into a book draw. That's the word leadership to triple eight triple one. And lastly, if you haven't yet checked out one of the other podcasts on our podcast network, you'll want to do that. That's the New Churches Q and A one. 
that Todd and I do, as, yep. as well as Ed and I. And when we talk about church planting, multi-site leadership, discipleship questions, basically about 12 to 15 minutes per episode, super sure, quick. So just look up new churches, two words on your podcasting app, and you'll find that. Well, thanks again for listening in, and we'll catch you next time.